podcasting from Madison, Wisconsin, the home of Bucky Badger and the University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Pharmacy. This is the Apothecary Club, a monthly podcast about emerging trends and their impact on pharmaceutical science and drug development. This podcast is a collaboration between UW-Madison School of Pharmacy, Division of Pharmacy Professional Development, and the American Association of Pharmaceutical Sciences. And now, here's your host, author and educator, Dr. Eric Burns. You are listening to the Apothecary Club podcast, episode one. Today, we're speaking with Nick Tatanetti the Herbert Irving Assistant Professor of Bioinformatics and the Director of Clinical Informatics at the Herbert Irving Comprehensive Cancer Center at Columbia University. Nick, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Eric. So tell me a little bit about yourself and your research. When I, when I look at your CV, you know, we're the same age. We're both faculty members at, at our respective institutions. And what strikes me most is how much you've done in your time as an academic. So Explain to me a little bit about what, what's driving you, who you are, and, and where your areas of focus are. Well, I'm really interested in the combination of clinical data with biomolecular data. And I got started down this path quite a long time ago during my dissertation studies at Stanford, where I wanted to study drug effects and I wanted to design new drugs. And I thought that the way to do it was to find new combinations of drugs that would treat diseases better than any single drug ever could. And to do this, I collected numerous data sets and really focused on molecular effects of drugs. And one of the data sets I collected because I thought it would be useful was this adverse event reporting system that the FDA makes available. And I use this as a resource, kind of a cursory resource, just to get an idea of what drugs do. And in doing that, I realized that it's really difficult to figure out what the side effects of drugs are. In fact, it's an ongoing challenge to even figure out what drug interactions might exist. And so I got kind of hooked into this field of clinical data mining or clinical informatics, where we're trying just to, just to figure out what is going on when somebody takes a drug. Uh, and so my dissertation ended up being really focused on that, where we discovered a new drug-drug interaction, and we were able to validate that interaction in an experimental model. And then since coming to Columbia, I've really expanded on that work. And my goal is always to understand drug effects, not only from a clinical characterization, what happens when a patient takes a drug, but also what is mechanistically happening in the body, what molecules are involved, what proteins or pathways or functional pathways are being hit by that drug that cause those effects. And so now I'm really focused on building out the molecular area of my research to complement all of the clinical characterization that I've been doing. So you completed your dissertation in 2012. We're, we're just getting into to 2016. Can you share with, with us in the audience what is currently taking place that is having the most impact on your research? And more specifically, what's changed over the recent years that is really requiring you to think about things a little bit differently? I think probably the most dynamic change that I've seen that's directly affected my research is the mass adoption of electronic health records. Uh, here at Columbia, we've been collecting health record data in electronic format for for almost 20 years. And we have an enormous repository, but we are just one institution across the country. We have four and a half million patients in our database, 
but there are 8 million people in just New York City. There are 300 million people across the country, and there are 8 billion people in this world. So it's a very small fraction of the human clinical experience that's being captured by one system. The, this adoption, this widespread adoption, largely because of federal initiatives of electronic health records, makes many, many more data sets available. And we have a collaboration called Odyssey, the Observational Health Data Science and Informatics Collaboration, which is a industry and academic collaboration. We have over 70 sites around the world, many of which are trying to get their data all into the same format so that we can share analysis, we can share results, and we can integrate those data to make new discoveries about a wide range of clinical informatics topics or clinical discovery topics from disease conditions, subgroups, treatment pathways, and my area of adverse drug events and drug-drug interactions. So that's really goes to the heart of, of what we were wanting to talk about today, which is really, you know, big data and, and what that means. Can you articulate and, and think back to when you first became aware of big data and, and when you started to, to really think about it and its applications towards your research interests? Yeah, I think the first time I encountered the term big data was probably during uh, my dissertation studies. And it was an ongoing joke to talk about big data it was because big data just kind of really came on the scene and dominated a lot of conversations at a very high level. And then those of us who've been working with data and are being trained as informaticists or data scientists, you could argue that those two are really one and the same, we're kind of confused by this sudden enamoration with this one term. And so to me it means, and, and so then I've had some time to think about it and accept it as a term that exists and it's real, and come to think about what it really means to have a big data set. And there's two types, main types of big data sets. There are incredibly long data sets, and there are incredibly wide data sets. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. A long data set is more typically what you traditionally see as a big data set. So this data set that maybe Facebook would collect or Google would collect. Google is a great example. So every time you search, you enter just a couple of words, and that's not very complex. But because they're doing hundreds of millions of queries every day, that generates an enormous data set. That's a long data set. A lot of observations of the same type of variable. In a very wide data set, you have very complex data. So you're not collecting perhaps a lot of observations, but what you are is collecting a lot of depth of observations. So in the clinical records, this is what we have. We have 10,000 different concepts that can describe the clinical characteristics of a disease of a patient. And we use many of those concepts every day to describe our patients. And so we have a lot of information about relatively few examples. And so both of these are big data, and they have very different problems uh, when trying to analyze them. So when I hear big data, I think back to when I first started to become introduced to it, and a friend of mine was really pushing this whole idea of, you know, marketing and adult education and, and higher ed policy related to federal aid and everything that goes with that. He was saying, you know, everything's in big data. And I kept asking him, what do you mean by that? And he finally pushed back to me one day and said, I really don't know. And he sent me this image. It was a, it was a meme and it said, big data is like high school dating. Everybody says they're doing it, but nobody really knows what they're doing. And 
So when I hear that, and you have your definition in terms of, of what big data means, can you expand a little bit about how these different areas of practice related to big data, how are you aligning the terminology and the practice of this within your area of research and how that area of research is expanding out to everybody else? I assume that there's a there's somewhat of a language barrier occurring when everyone's talking about this term. Can you talk a little bit about how you're managing that potential difficulty? Yeah, I think that a lot of the terms that we've been using are fairly natural to those of us who've been trained in machine learning and data mining. The mapping is pretty clear where we say we have observations and we have features or we have examples and these examples have traits. Then this kind of maps very directly to these big data sets. You either have a lot of observations or you have a lot of features. And when that, and at some point, at some number, that becomes big, and then you can call it big data. Now, exactly what that number is and what that means is not clear, and you'll never get a good definition from anyone right now. Sometimes, you know, the one I like that I hear a lot is if you can't, you shouldn't be able to analyze a big data set on one computer. If you can't analyze a big data set on one computer, then it's, then it's big data. It reminds me of my old research methods courses where they said you can never, you know, how what, what what type of sample size do you want? And you, you respond with a lot. Yeah. And the answer, well, what is a lot? So if, if that's our definition of, of one computer, sooner or later that's going to reach scale. So how are we navigating this from from a technological standpoint within your lab? Having more than one computer seems like a, a pretty arbitrary thing, and that that's completely fine. Right. You you all are the experts in this, but. At what point do you think you will reach the level of the long and the wide of the data sets? Who's driving towards that goal right now? As a leader in the field, I'd really think that your opinion on that means something to the rest of the researchers out there. I think it's one of those things where the research has, there's been a lot of promise. Anytime there's a lot of hype about a particular area, and one is big data, because there's been the promise of big data. A long time ago, actually, there's this article that came out about, actually a very long time ago, there was an article that came out in physics about the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. It's a beautiful article about how well math describes physics and how surprising it is that it works just so well. And Google had published a paper uh, about a decade ago, maybe a little more than that, that paralleled this. And it said the unreasonable effectiveness of data. And it was about how data was really changing the way that we were modeling. And they got a lot of things right, where we need to rely more on data and we don't necessarily want to prejudice our models with how we think the world works. That if we use data, we can actually infer how the world works, and that might be a more accurate representation. But they also missed, because they went a little far and said that essentially models are going to die and data will be king. And I disagree with that. I think the, the model is going to continue to play an important part, and it's especially important when you're dealing with data sets, wide data sets, like clinical data. And as they get longer, you might not necessarily converge. The data themselves will not tell you what system is being affected or maybe what molecule is really responsible for disease or whether or not that's just a confounded variable from clinical practice because one physician might just prefer to prescribe one type of drug over another that are essentially equivalent. Those types of things are very difficult to capture from the data alone. 
and you need models to understand what's happening in the data. So the question I I continually am coming back to when I look at your your lab, you have you know a how many people do you have in your lab? Over 10. Yeah, that's right. Um, a, a significant number. So when we're talking about the idea that models may die and, and data may become king and, and the, the average human or the, the, the average person is hearing about the research coming out talking about how technology is going to wipe out jobs and, and all this stuff, I, I think about the researchers that are involved in this what is the human component to big data and how is that human component being worked into the overall process of, of mining? And, and, and from that standpoint, what are the impacts? I love that question because I am really passionate about the human component. Like a lot of fields, the ability to automate mining, to, to design algorithms that can dive into data sets, to identify new hypotheses, is changing the way that we are conducting research. So and it is allowing scientists to dedicate more of their time to create to, to creative matters. So instead of uh, spending a lot of time analyzing a data set or trying to conceptualize it and come up with good hypotheses, we can spend more time thinking about how the hypotheses are linked together, thinking about how to design a good experiment to validate these or test these hypotheses, kind of taking a step back, allowing the data to take care of some of the nitty gritty details of science and allowing our minds to do what they do, what computers can't do, is think creatively about how this wide spectrum of results might link together to tell us something new about the world around us. And that's what I think is really powerful here. It's not that these computers are going to take over our jobs. It's that they're going to free us from doing technical tasks so that we can do what humans do best, which is think creatively. So how important, and, and we're getting into a, an area that, that's really interesting from, from my standpoint. I think about the, the think creatively. I think about the the process of innovation specifically out of, you know, groups like IDEO and things like that, that really take into account the human aspect. Can you articulate a little bit about, from a professional development standpoint, how important is it for traditional scientists who think so, um, think in their constructs and are, are very, I would suggest, you know, regimented, linear in, in how they're thinking. How is innovation and that human component uh, playing a role in, in what you're doing in your lab? Are, are you actively seeking this type of skill set out? And if so, what specifically are you looking for? And how are uh, the professional development or training opportunities coming about for scientists in this area? Yeah, I think that's an excellent topic. So I'll start with my own experience. Uh, when I am looking for a new candidate for the lab, for example, or trying to recruit somebody, I'm really looking for a set of skills that go beyond a particular domain. So you'll notice if you look at the research that we do and the members of the lab that a lot of these people have very multidisciplinary backgrounds. They did a lot of biology, they did a lot of computer science, they code and hack in their free time. They have, Their minds are already set up to synthesize different worlds together. And that is the main kind of skill sets that I am looking for. Because when we do our analysis, we are often 
diving into many different areas of biology. We use similar techniques in those areas, but the insight that we might get can be very different. And so you need to be, have a very adaptable approach to science. And uh, so what was the other question you were asking? From a professional development standpoint, right. how, is, how is this playing a role in, in how your researchers are, are taking control of their career? And I, meant, I asked this question because obviously people listening to this are interested in, in the latest and greatest related to research, specifically big data and, right. and international health. Right. But there is going to be a component, I would, I would suspect, that they're looking to, to try something new within their areas. So mm-hmm. when they're looking for something related to professional development and big data and just general interdisciplinary skill sets, right. what are the types of things that they might be looking for? Well, I think the number one most basic skill sets are language skills. And I don't mean speaking French. I mean programming skills. So you need to be able to speak computer, and that means you need to be able to program, and preferably in many different languages. So not just that you need to be, you know, I'm a C programmer or I'm a Python programmer, but you need to understand what the computer is capable of, and probably even more importantly, you need to have an intuition for what the computer is not capable of, so that you can effectively use the machine to facilitate your research. And so technical skills, this uh, idea of technical virtuosity, being being highly skilled and understanding what a machine can do um, is the primary uh, skill set that you need. And anyone can do this. You can see that a lot of resources are becoming more and more available, many of which are free and open, large resources, courses that are offered by MIT, by Stanford. These are fantastic introductory to computer science programs, classes, and you can string them together and you can really make your own degree and you can get this skill set. And anyone can do it. It's a lot like language where, you know, it does take a little bit of study. It does take some hard work, but we all kind of innately have this ability to work through these logic problems to understand how these computers work. And, um, and you can see that in communities online, you see that we have highly skilled people. I, I see when I go online to, to some social media sites, for example, you can see really intellectual conversations from people saying that they're lay people, but you can tell that they have a technical skill set that allows them to understand the research at a deeper level than perhaps uh, the average person would have 50 years ago. Awesome. Nick, just one last closing question for uh, this podcast. What are the major roadblocks for using big data in the next five to ten years? I think there's tremendous opportunity for big data and big data analysis in research. However, we have to be very careful and systematic. Just because we have a large data set doesn't mean we can throw out rigorous scientific method. So we have to generate hypotheses. We can do that using big data. And we have to evaluate hypotheses. And we can use that doing big data. But we have to continually reevaluate our findings, think about what they mean in terms of what we're learning about the world around us, and then revalidate those, come up with new hypotheses, and test them again. So I would just caution big data scientists to be careful about where the data lead them and to be think critically at every step of the path to make sure they're being rigorous in their approach. Well, that's great information. Thanks, Nick. We really appreciate it. If, if any of our listeners wanted to reach out to you, how would you suggest that they get in contact? 
Uh, all of my uh, information, contact information is available online at my lab's website, tatnetilab.org. And the, that information will also be available within the show notes. Thank you very much, Nick. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me, Eric. That's great. Thanks for listening to the Apothecary Club with Dr. Eric Burns. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll pass along our web address, theapothecaryclub.com, to your friends and colleagues. Be sure to check out our archives section on our website for previous podcasts and follow us on social media. This has been a collaboration between UW-Madison School of Pharmacy, Division of Pharmacy Professional Development, and the American Association of Pharmaceutical Scientists. Join us next time for another edition of the Apothecary Club Podcast.